0: We did have a great time last night at the Islas. Um I was telling Chris earlier, I was staying with a couple other guys on the west uh, porch of the barn. And I watched a couple little kids go by like ships, negotiating other ships like in an area filled with ships. Two little, little ones. And I knew who one was. I didn't know who the other one was. I confessed to Larry and Sean. I said, there's so many little children here, and I don't know their name. And Sean said, and I love that. (laughs) Not the name, there's so many little kids. It's such a delight. It was a great, great time, great fellowship. That's part of, by the way, just being a church family is that ability to get together, hang out with each other, and have a great time doing so. On a much more serious note, in the history of the world, there has never been an act more evil than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In the history of the world, there has never been a greater betrayal of innocence than the condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus. No one has ever been more wronged than Jesus was wronged. No one has ever suffered more deeply or more unjustly than Jesus suffered. And, guys, as I'm saying that, whatever the worst version of suffering, persecution, betrayal in your mind is, and probably all of us have some, some elements, some images, news stories, Christians in other parts of the world, whatever it is, cringeworthy uh, things you think about, you wouldn't want that for anyone. Whatever the worst example is you can think of, what occurred to Jesus was worse. He's the only person in the history of the world who was guilty of zero sin born or unborn. No one else was innocent the way Jesus was innocent. No one else could suffer to the depth that a perfect man and perfect God together could suffer. So whatever the worst is you can imagine, Jesus suffering, his betrayal, his crucifixion was worse. And at the same time, all the evil, all the betrayal, every wrong, every injustice placed upon Jesus everything experienced by god the son who took on willingly our humanity all of it every bit of it was done according to the plan and for the purpose of his loving father every bit of it every bit of the suffering some people call god a masochist jesus a masochist he took on himself this suffering Some call God a cosmic child abuser when you talk about the will of the Father for the Son to endure such suffering. Neither one, of course, is the truth at all. They miss the mark entirely, and we'll talk a little bit about that here in a minute. We're in the book of Acts this morning in the series Act Out, and we're going to be looking at the fact and some of the implications of Jesus' suffering as the predetermined will of God, the plans So the plans of God for Jesus' suffering, the purpose of God for Jesus' suffering. And let me qualify what we're doing this morning, at least in this way. We're we're talking about the sovereignty of God on one hand. So when we talk about God's predetermined, predestined plan for Jesus, we're talking about God's sovereignty. We're talking about that sovereignty in the connection of Jesus' suffering so we're talking about sovereignty and suffering in one lesson. And these are huge topics in and of themselves that you could talk about in all manner of ways for a long time. But we're singularly trying to draw out the element that comes out of the passages in Acts we'll be in. So there's a whole lot of things we're not saying. There's a whole lot of ways that we otherwise might qualify what we're saying that we won't have time to. So related to God's sovereignty and suffering the lens that we're using are these passages in acts that will be in specifically related to jesus but then by way of application we'll we'll take some of those elements and we'll look at what what does that mean for you and i in our suffering what is god's intention with the suffering that you and i that all of his children experience through life today brief recap we've already seen two lessons prior lessons We saw that Luke, who authored the Gospel of Luke and Acts as well, Luke wanted to make sure that we understood, and Theophilus, his patron, the guy whose benefit he was writing for, he said in Acts 1, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the inference was what Jesus began in the Gospel accounts was now continuing through the apostles. And then, of course, through the apostles, through their followers, and right on down to us today that that this thing wasn't over that simply god's plan and will through jesus was just beginning this new stage we call the age of the spirit or the church age we also saw on the day of pentecost from acts 2 that not only was jesus promise of the spirit given the holy spirit came and from that day on every believer in jesus is not only sealed stamped by god by the Holy Spirit as belonging to God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we said this is life-changing, there was nothing like it before, but that also every believer is raised up to the status in a sense, in a very significant sense, to the status of Old Testament uh, prophet and priest by the Holy Spirit's presence. Peter told us that when he quoted Joel chapter 2. So that's where we've been. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at God's sovereign plans and purposes in Jesus' suffering And then implications for our lives today. So in this order, this is what we're going through. God's plan for Jesus was to suffer and die and rise again. And I don't want to leave this out. It's not what we're given primary reference to. But God used the motives and means of sinful men towards that end, towards that plan. God was using man's wickedness intentionally for his benevolent good plans. God's purpose was ultimately to glorify Jesus. And God uses the worst things that occur in our lives for our good. Okay, that's where we're going. Some people see God as merely reacting. Reacting. Life throws... something happens and God's got to figure out in the moment what to do with it. In your life or in the news, whatever, God's responding. He's reacting to things that He's not in control of. And that is not what Scripture teaches. So Scripture teaches that God is sovereignly in control of all things, and He's using all things for His own purposes. And guys, if the God you believe in isn't that big, get rid of your God, because He can't keep His promises. If God is reacting in the moment to these surprises that come up that He was unaware of, and then He just does His best to somehow make sense of it, that's not the God of the Bible. So God can't keep His promises if He's not sovereignly in control of all things. And when we talk about sovereignty with a capital S or as a theme, that's really what we're saying. God is sovereignly in control of everything that occurs on the earth. And somehow, and this is the mind bender, He's using the worst things that could happen to still develop His own purposes. And guys, nothing was worse. Nothing has ever occurred in the history of planet Earth that was worse than the crucifixion of Jesus. And out of the worst thing that's ever happened on the earth, the very best end or the very best purpose was realized, which was the exaltation of God the Son and the redemption of fallen sinners like you and me. That's sovereignty with a big S. We're looking at a smaller piece of that today. But we need to understand our God is in absolute control. And guys, though, I'm talking about application here before I should... We need to know that because when life upends and when your life upends and when things fall apart and you feel like God used to love me and now he doesn't or God was blessing me before, (coughs) excuse me, and now he's not. No, You and I, we live, we breathe in the ocean of God's grace, His favor, and His love. He can't love you more. He can't love you less. Your experience doesn't determine God's attitude or God's love to you. So even though if the bottom falls out of our life and it feels like we're not in control, we aren't anyway, God is in control. And God's got promises attached to that, and that's where we'll end up. If you got your Bibles or your apps, Acts 2, 3, and 4 is where we'll be. And apologies, because we're I'm picking out the verses from these three chapters that speak to the same theme, okay? So we're jumping around a little bit. Uh, when the Apostle Peter explained to the crowd on Pentecost Sunday what was going on, you remember the crowds there? <clears throat> Excuse me, Pentecost is a feast, there's Jews from all over the Roman world there. They hear this crazy sound, probably like a tornado was coming through. They come out in the streets and hear all these disciples of Jesus praising God in innumerable languages, languages that represented at least the Roman Empire. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Peter quoted Joel. This is Acts 2, verses 16 and 17. Peter says, these guys aren't drunk. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it will be God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Theologians, academics quibble on when Joel was written. Might have been around 800 B.C. Might have been written around 400 B.C. We don't know. The point would be this. Hundreds of years before this, God said this is going to happen. And it happened. God says, I'm going to do something, and He does it. And to the, all the promises of the Scriptures and all the Old Testament thinking, thinking in context of Acts, all the Old Testament prophecies about what God would do were contingent on God being sovereign. On Him being able to make sure that what He promised He could fulfill, what He prophesied, what He said would happen, would in fact happen. When Peter quotes Joel 2, he's saying what God said just happened here it is hundreds of years ago this is what joel said here it is today god wasn't making a lucky guess god spoke what would happen because god was bringing it to pass in fact all the prophetic scriptures that tell about what would happen before it does are predicated on god being in full control of all things in fact in isaiah Second half of Isaiah, God says repeatedly, the reason I can tell you I'm God and you'll know I'm God is because I'll tell you what happens before it happens. Now he can do that not just because of foreknowledge that he knows something before it occurs, he does it because he's sovereignly in control. What was true of Jesus' incarnation, life, rejection, suffering, death, burial, and his resurrection is from that same theme. God said these things would happen, and in Jesus' life, that's exactly what we see. So first, Jesus' rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection were according to God's definite plan. This is Acts 2, if you look at verses 22 and 23. This is still Pentecost Sunday. Peter has a lengthy speech there, in part of which he says here, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with Mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter says, You guys were here, you've seen this, you've heard about these. This isn't news. Verse 23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Jesus was de- delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 23 definite plan is a couple different greek words but one of the words has to do we get horizon from and the thought is this in god's will in his mind and in his intentions he had described the limits of what would happen to jesus what would happen to him and the limits of what that would be god had determined that so when jesus suffers he's suffering within the confines if you will of what god had determined bad as it was that's what god had determined ahead of time foreknowledge here isn't just knowing that it would happen it's a previous determination so peter makes no bones he says to this crowd what happened to jesus is what god the father planned would happen to jesus and again put that in context just for a minute so that means not only his incarnation and his life it'd be hard to come from heaven right the knowledge of heaven and his perfections and walk the dusty roads of the earth as a human with all those limitations, that would be a challenge. But then he's tempted like we are. He faces all kinds of temptations. And then he's rejected, and he's betrayed, and he suffers. Guys, he's scourged. That is unimaginable to me. Flesh torn from your body. He's crowned with thorns. You know, shame, humiliation, suffering. And and Peter says, and God intended all of that. That's only what God wanted for him. Peter says, "Jesus' rejection to be crucified by lawless, God-rejecting men was God's plan and God's will all along. No mistake, no surprise." If you turn to Acts three, eighteen, Peter's speaking to a crowd at the temple. This is after Pentecost. Doesn't tell us when, but a little bit after Pentecost. <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> and Peter. And John had gone up into the temple, and a lame man had been healed. And so they've got the attention of all the people there in the temple courts. And this is what Peter says in part. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, so the Old Testament prophecies about God's Messiah, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter says to that crowd, God prophesied Messiah's suffering in the Old Testament, and now he's fulfilled it. He said it was coming, and now here it was. Not a surprise again, God's predetermined plan. If you turn over to Acts chapter 4, again, we're pursuing this theme. The apostles have been arrested because they were preaching in Jesus' name, and they'd been told not to. And as they go back to the assembled group of believers, the church, that group prays, and this is in part what they pray. Acts 4, starting at verse 24. They prayed, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, and he's going to quote Psalm 2, this is a thousand years earlier, this was written by David, why did the Gentiles rage, so non-Jews, why did the non-Jews rage, and the peoples, your people, plot in vain, the kings of the earth, so the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against God, and against His anointed. Remember that to be anointed, that's, that is the Christ. To be, the Christ is to be the anointed one, the Messiah. And then they apply it, verse 27. They say, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, your anointed one, both Herod, there's a king, Pontius Pilate, there's the ruler, along with the Gentiles, there are the Romans, and the peoples of Israel, that's Psalm 2, to do, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Psalm 2, the world rises up in rebellion against God and His Christ to do, Whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. No accident. Exactly what God said would take place. Now if you go back in the Old Testament, you think of the promise of incarnation and and, um, redemption. Genesis 3.15 is the first. The, The Messiah, the Savior, would crush Satan. But he'd be hurt in the process. He would suffer. He would be bitten on the heel. Or think of Psalm 22. We've studied through that before. It's a gut-wrenching description of Jesus' crucifixion. Think of Isaiah 53. That's probably the most poignant of the Old Testament passages that speaks of Jesus' suffering, willing suffering for us, disfigured more than any man. We, We thought He was afflicted for Himself. No, it was for our transgressions He was being afflicted. So out of all of this, as Peter, as the apostles, as the early church looks on what had occurred to Jesus, they conclude this is exactly what God said would happen, not just said, it was his plan. God wasn't taken by surprise at Jesus' rejection, and Jesus was not a hapless victim. Read John's Gospel, I mean, and the, the synoptics say I could call angels and they'd deliver me. Jesus says he speaks and the crowds that came to arrest him fall down. He's not a hapless victim. What happened to Jesus was exactly what God predestined to take place. That's the scriptural language. What happened to Jesus is exactly what God the son signed up for. Now, what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that God instigated the wickedness that was brought to bear against Jesus because Here's the other side of what they're saying. Look at Acts 2.23. Though God ordained Jesus' suffering and death, His sovereign plan was accomplished by the means of sinful men acting according to their own sinful desires. People with their own unjust, malicious motives were the means that God used to advance His plans. So Acts 2.23 Peter says to the Pentecost Sunday crowd, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. He doesn't say God the Father did. That There was human culpability for what they did. God used their evil, but they were responsible for their evil. He says, you killed Him. If you turn again to Acts 3 back in the temple after Peter had healed the lame man. Peter says there, starting at verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus. Now listen to this language. So, it's the predetermined plan of God. And Peter says, whom you delivered over, you denied in the presence of Pilate, though he decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Do you see on one hand, God says, I'm sovereignly in control. On the other hand, sinful humanity is absolutely culpable, responsible for their sin. God's using their sin for His plans and purposes, but they're still absolutely responsible for their sin towards God and towards Christ. God used the evil motives and desires of men to accomplish His holy and glorious purposes. That theme runs throughout the Scriptures. A couple of examples. Jesus said one of His own would betray Him. Matthew 26, 24. He knew it was Judas, and then He sent Judas to do what Judas had already determined to do. John 13, 25-30. He's not in the dark. He's not guessing. He knows Judas will betray him. And he, he says to Judas, Go and do what you've already determined to do that night of the betrayal. I think of this. It's kind of ludicrous. It's ironic that the people who should have known better um, my wife tells her Sunday school class, Sin makes you stupid. These guys knew the Bible. And they didn't realize they're fulfilling biblical prophecy. As they fulfill their own evil desires against God's Messiah. The chief priests were following their own hateful evil desires when they paid Judas thirty pieces of silver, not thinking that they were fulfilling God's word in Zechariah eleven, seven through fourteen about Israel's rejection of their shepherd, and they were doing so for the price of a lowly slave, Exodus twenty one, thirty-two. These were guys that should have known better. But you know what? They're so committed to their own deficient, fallen, evil plans, they don't even see they're doing what God said would happen. They are the agents of what God said would happen. The sovereign plans of God don't depend on God making people do evil things. The sovereign plans of God take into account and use the evil purposes of men for God's noble ends. And God, as only He can, takes our worst, this is at the crucifixion, the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus, and uses it for His glorious best, seen in no place more fully than in Jesus' suffering and future glory. So, Jesus isn't a masochist, and God's not a cosmic child abuser, so why would God, who loves His Son, right? the Trinity from eternity past, the Trinity within itself, Loves each member. So there's no thought, there can be no thought that God the Father somehow wants to punish or impugn or do something inherently wicked to God the Son. It's not even an option. So what is the purpose? Now, we know John 3.16 says God so loved the world. So God loved the world. Or Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church. So, just stick with me on the direction. God loved. Jesus loved the world, the church. And that's why Jesus came. To redeem us. So God's love for us, okay? Jesus' love for us. But here's the question that we're following this morning. Not God's love for us. What did God the Father's love for God the Son look like in this pre-planned suffering and then resurrection? What was God's love for His Son, what was that about? What was the purpose the Father had in mind, not for the world, and not for the church, but for the Son? Why did the Father send the Son to suffer like this? Acts 2.36. Peter's conclusion on Pentecost Sunday. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him... Both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Guys, usually the term Lord there, especially in this section of Scripture, is deity. Peter says, God has made him God and Messiah. That God has combined in himself, in the Son, both Godhead and manhood. And not just, not just manhood generally, but God's promised, saving, anointed King, his Messiah, his chosen one. That's what God was doing through Jesus' suffering. He's exalting God the Son. God's purpose was to glorify the Son by combining in him both Godhead and Messianic King, Jesus as Lord and as Christ. The sufferings of Jesus were so that the Father could heap more glory on the Son as He became Savior and King. That's the love of the Father. That's the purpose or the end to which the plan of suffering occurred. Jesus prayed, John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. What's, what, what is He praying? He's praying about His suffering, His death, His resurrection, and then His ensconcement in heaven as the reigning Messiah and King. So he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. Now, he goes on to say, he's, the Son has glorified the Father. He says, now Father, glorify the Son. Luke 24, 26, Was it not necessary, Jesus said to two of his disciples who don't recognize him after the resurrection, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The suffering was always preceding the purpose, which was glory. The Father's purpose for the Son in suffering was ultimately glory. Hebrews 2.9 says it this way, We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of His suffering. So if we say what was the purpose the Father had for the Son and all those plans for His suffering, it's His glory. It's the Father heaping glory upon the Son. That's the purpose. It's also to give Jesus joy. You see this in Hebrews 12.2. The author says, we're looking to Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There it says, Jesus endured suffering for a future joy. Now I assume this is in part not only reunion in heaven with God his Father, but it's the trophy that is his bride. Through redemption, Jesus has won for himself a bride. Every saved person in heaven and eternity is the fruit of Jesus' suffering. It's the fruit of his victory over sin and death. So there was future joy. So if uh, we were gone from our family and, and we're uh, on a whatever vacation, we're gone for a long time, that thought of "I'm going to get home and I'm going to see my family and there'll be joy in that reunion, well we would take that thought and we'd multiply it. Jesus on the cross, anticipating matter of fact, do you remember in John's gospel? I love this because it's so personal. Jesus tells His disciples, it might be in 17 in the prayer, I forget now. He says, I want you to see me in my glory. It's like you guys know me as this uh, forgettable uh, Jewish rabbi physically. You know, Isaiah says there's nothing special about him. You've seen me in my humanity like this, but you have no idea what I'm really like. And so there He says... I can't wait for the day when you see who I really am and what I'm really like. So there's not only that sense that the Father's going to heap glory on the Son as, as God and Christ, but there's also that sense that Jesus says, I'm going to have joy from the fruit of my labor. I'm going to have my bride, the church. I'm going to have the redeemed of all ages are going to be with me. And they are the fruit, they're the joy of my suffering. Do you remember also in John's Gospel, it says, uh, when a woman's given birth, she's in pain. I don't know anything about this, and I'm okay with that. When a woman's given birth, she has pain. But then it says, she forgets the pain once the baby has come out. All of a sudden, as, as whatever that felt like, as, as bad as it was, would be, once the baby was out, the suffering was replaced with that sense of joy, because here's the baby, here's that new life that's something like hebrews is saying about jesus this future joy the fruits of his suffering the pre-planned suffering of jesus was for the purpose of his future glory and joy that's the love of the father for the son and in in a world guys in which sin and death are the norm that's why it looked this way redemption required jesus suffering uh, two two examine two scriptures just speaking a little bit of this. Colossians 1:15 and 16 closes with this phrase. It, it says he's the firstborn of all creation. He, he gets the privilege of firstborn. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, for this reason, Colossians 1, that in everything he might be preeminent. Why did God the Father send God the Son? Because He wanted to make Him preeminent in every way possible. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10 say the same thing, that all things will be summed up in Christ. So the plans of God related to Jesus' suffering were for the purpose of glorifying Him, glory and honor and joy. God's purpose and plans for Jesus was to heap glory and honor and joy on Him. So that's the Father's love for the Son. What about us and what about our sufferings? So the worst suffering that's ever occurred on the earth produced the highest good, the greatest good. What about suffering in your life and mine? We basically find the same thing to be true in our own lives. God uses suffering now to glorify us in two ways. By making us more like Christ now and the suffering we experience in this life now has its return in future glory and joy. Um, If you talk about suffering, you're talking about a topic I would gladly ignore. I don't want it. I don't ask for it. You know, people say pray for patience. I never pray for patience. Pray for suffering. I never pray for suffering. You know what? It's going to come. And God will be with me in it. But... Suffering is something we need to take seriously and we need to make sure we take it as seriously as God does and scripture does because otherwise when it comes, our world can feel like it's been upended. Our faith can be shaken. And I think often is when suffering comes in and I start wondering, does God love me less today than he did before? Uh, I thought I had God's blessing and favor. Did I lose God's favor when the bottom fell out of my life? Was suffering whatever it looked like when it came in, that unwelcome stranger knocks at our door, doesn't wait for us to open it, but barges in. When suffering comes in, how do we see it? What do we do with it? What's our mindset? What's our lens? So first, there is a fruit of suffering that we get the benefit of in time. We get the benefit of suffering in time. This is from Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, Paul's not a masochist either. The Apostle Paul's writing this. He doesn't enjoy suffering to enjoy suffering. He says we rejoice in our sufferings because we know something, because something's true and I know it. That suffering produces endurance. That, that when suffering enters my life and I'm compelled to keep living and drawing breath and going forward day by day, he said that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. It proves the life of Christ within me. It proves the character that is mine in Christ. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul's describing suffering here as the means by which God is inculcating into us more of the life of Christ. You know, if you and I were, let's say, out of shape, uh, maybe we're out of shape, period, or, or maybe we were sick and we're weak, and we go to the gym to increase our strength, we might start lifting weights, and that could be painful, right? Or you might go exercise and you feel great in the moment and the next day you realize I wasn't ready for that and my muscles are seizing up. You, you get it. So you see a direct correlation. I had this pain, this suffering in the gym, but, but I realize it produced greater strength or flexibility or stamina, whatever. You see a direct correlation. There's some pain, but there's this positive gain. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. That's not later in heaven that's here and now. That suffering that you and I go through now, it has a direct fruit in our character development into the image of Christ. Remember, God's great work in us is transforming us into the image of Christ. This is a good thing. You've also got this theme in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-11. He says, we have this treasure, the, the life of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, in jars of clay these earthen bodies that wear out, that break down, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now listen to what Paul says. He's describing a Christian life. He says we are afflicted in every way. And if you read Paul's stories, you realize this guy suffered crazy, beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, you name it. He says we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're afflicted. It's hard. We feel like we've been taken to the woodshed, but we're not crushed. He says we're perplexed. We're confused. We're saying, Lord, what is going on? I don't get it. I don't understand it. Did I do something wrong? He says we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. And I want to pause on this for just a second. Guys, I think more often than not, most of our responses to suffering are often despair. And despair is a sin. And it's a sin because it means God's word is not true. God is a liar. And uh, despair to suffering has been one of my deep challenges. And I have to tell myself, despair is a sin. Despair is not an option. That I have to remember that whether I'm, I'm afflicted and I'm perplexed, I don't understand. But I know God's still in control and I know he's made promises that he's going to bless and he's going to use everything for my good. So I don't understand it, but despair is not an option. So when we feel that tug to simply like we're throwing in the towel, oh, well, it's just suffering, it's just loss, it's just defeat. I say, no, I'm perplexed, but I reject despair because I have God's promises We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. God doesn't leave us in our struggles and suffering. In fact, if anything, there's a sense that He draws nearer, or He draws us nearer to Himself, at least in our experience. He says we're struck down, knocked down, maybe again and again, but we're not destroyed. Now listen to verse 10. Paul says we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Paul says it feels like I'm always dying like my suffering I'm always being delivered over to death so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies why would God subject you and me to this kind of suffering because the life of Christ is going to be enlarged in us through that process We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, one kind of suffering or another, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. God's not happy or satisfied leaving us in the sinful condition He found us. He's a loving Father and He trains us up and the training makes us more like Christ and He uses painful suffering to that end. Painful suffering has a benefit in the moment. It's transformation into more of Christ's image. Remember, Hebrews 12 says, uh, No training, no discipline, no pain or suffering feels good in the moment. It's only later we see the benefit. But we do see the benefit. If you've been a Christian very long, I'll bet you can look back in your life and you can see areas where you realize God has grown you up, that God has changed you over time. And I bet that if you look back, you'll see that part of that training included pain and disappointment and suffering. That those were tools in God's tool belt to bring about confirmation to Christ. He's not going to leave us where He found us. There also, though, is like Christ, there's a future glory and joy for us attached to the current suffering. So we do get a benefit in the moment, but we also get glory and joy in the future. Romans 8.18 Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not being worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we get to heaven in our glory and we look back on our sufferings, they're going to look like anthills, though right now they look like mountains. I'm on the earth. I'm going through the suffering in the moment. This thing is so big. It's so constraining. It's like I'm facing a mountain. Paul says, when we get to heaven, that mountain will look like an anthill. That there will be no comparison between the degree of suffering here and now and the glory that's attached to it in our future in heaven. It won't even be comparable. Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you, appear, you will appear with Him in glory. Your future is glorious. And last, Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that He, this is speaking about Jesus, For whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. What's Jesus doing? He's bringing you and I to glory. And it says, in that process, he was perfected through suffering. This doesn't mean he was inherently deficient. It means, as our high priest, he was tempted like we are, tested like we are, without sin. And so, his priesthood has been verified, it's been established but He's bringing us to Himself in glory. Think of it this way. You're in a world, everyone's in a world, in which suffering is a given. Suffering is a given, right? Disappointment is a given. Sin brings death. You and I experience sin and death in all kinds of ways. Sometimes from our own sin. Sometimes from other people's sin. But suffering is a given. It's an absolute given. If I don't have Christ, I suffer And that's it. If I don't have Christ, I suffer. And that's it. If I have Christ, if I'm in Christ, I suffer. And somehow God takes that suffering and gives me a net gain out of it. So I'm a Christian. I suffer, period, because suffering's part of the world. If I suffer as a Christian, God somehow takes that thing and he makes it a benefit to me instead of just a loss. It's not a net loss. It's a net gain. Uh, Thomas Gray's a famous poem, Elegy, written in a country churchyard, describes the poets in a little uh, country churchyard. He's in the cemetery. And one of the great phrases in that, he looks around, everybody's leveled, right? In the grave, no matter how big my life lived. But it has that great famous phrase, the paths of glory lead only one place. And where is that? The paths of glory lead only to the grave. But for the Christian, what, whatever your status was on the earth, Paths of glory don't lead to the grave. They lead through the grave and they lead up to future glory and honor and joy. The grave is not the end. Absolutely. So we want to make sure that what Jesus... uh, What the Father planned for Jesus was suffering for the purpose of glory and honor and joy. And what God's doing in your life and mine is He's using suffering the same way He used it in Jesus' life. He's conforming us to Christ's image here and now. That's benefit. Aren't you glad when you sin less? Aren't you glad for a clear conscience? Doesn't it feel better to live life saying, not that we're perfect, not that we don't sin, but isn't it nice to be a Christian 30 years into it and look back and say, thank God I am not what I was like before. That in the moment, that's great. Absolutely. And then we're going to get to heaven and we're going to come to this perfection of glory that God's always intended for His children through Jesus' suffering. So what Jesus, what God did the Father through Jesus' suffering, His plan and His purpose, that's what He's doing in your life and mine as well. Uh, what kinds of uh, suffering does this take into account? And guys, here's the thing. We've listened to uh, preachers before and... Uh, I say, if this doesn't preach in the persecuted church, then it's not true. Okay? If you got a message about health, wealth, prosperity that works in the States, but it doesn't work in China, North Korea, southern Mexico, then I'll tell you it's not true. Doesn't preach across the world in every, every believer's life, it's not true. Okay? What kinds of suffering does this take into account? So this covers when I maybe break a finger or get physically hurt. I've got a promise from God that suffering he's going to use for my good. But friends, this applies in Chad, Sub-Saharan Africa, where women literally see their husbands gunned down before them, where people are burned alive in their villages. This is going on today. This isn't time ago. This is going on today today. Christians who are imprisoned, uh, operated on in China, uh, Christians who are prisoners in North Korea, their are suffering. This covers their suffering. Not just ours. You know, by measure, <laughs> our suffering is pretty minimal, isn't it? But this applies to any suffering. This applies to all suffering. This doesn't just preach here. This preaches in the areas where persecution is most severe. In fact, maybe it's something that they can embrace more fully than we can typically because they see so much more of it or because it's so much more acute, the suffering or the pain. We may still weep in our losses. We will still feel the sting of rejection. We will experience many disappointments, but in the midst of any and all suffering, faith requires us to come to the place of hope. We can say something like this, God, I believe that somehow you will use this pain, suffering, and loss for my glory and joy. Because He will. Because He will. Stand with me if you would. I want to close. I, didn't, I intentionally didn't speak out of Romans 8 because I wanted to read it together to close. This is, this is that same truth we've been talking about. This is the part of the conclusion of Romans 8. This is true for you and I in our suffering. Read with me please. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many.